Hello, and welcome to a very special series that I am moderating on diversity, equity, and inclusivity by CME Outfitters. This CMEO briefcase is entitled Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Cardiac Care, Real-World Strategies to Address Inequities in Treatment and Outcomes. This program is supported by an educational grant provided by Johnson & Johnson. My name is Dr. Monica Peek, and I'm the Ellen H. Block Professor of Health Justice in the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago, where I also serve as the Associate Director for the Chicago Center for Diabetes Translation Research and the Director of Research and the Associate Director for the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. I'm really delighted today to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Sunil Rao. Dr. Rao, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, hello. Thanks, Dr. Peek. I'm Sunil Rao. I'm Professor of Medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and I'm Director of Interventional Cardiology for the NYU Langone uh, health system. And I've been interested in uh, issues around access to care for both coronary disease and other cardiovascular diseases. And I really am delighted to be part of this discussion today. Thank you. Really excited to have you. Before we begin, I want to just note that this program was designed to build upon some foundational concepts that have been covered in previous DEI activities. To learn more about the impact of systemic racism on healthcare and health disparities, as well as how racial and ethnic disparities present in the field of cardiology, we encourage you to engage in these foundational programs, which are linked here. Now, before we begin, I want to clarify that as colleagues, Sunil and I have decided that we would refer to each other by our first names uh, during this session. Sunil, I look forward to our candid discussion today. I'm really excited to have you here with us. Let me first start by reviewing our first learning objective for our program, which is to implement strategies to address inequities in the treatment and outcomes of patients with atrial fibrillation. So to start our discussion, I think it's really important to consider social determinants of health and patient care. And so just a level set for all of our audience members today, social or structural determinants of health, also known as the social drivers of health, are all of the things that um, determine health care that aren't directly medical factors, but they do include things like insurance and access to care. We mainly think about these things um, like poverty, food insecurity, transportation issues, education and employment, um, things that are in the social and built environment, exposure to uh, violence and crime, all the things that determine um, people's health and their ability to access medical care. Um, and so all of that uh, determines how people show up for care and when they show up for care. And so Sunil, I'm gonna hand it off to you and have you begin the discussion about how these kinds of social and structural determinants of health relate specifically to atrial fibrillation. Yeah, th thanks Monica. You know, I think this is really, really important. I think the previous model was that our interactions with patients uh, and our ability to diagnose and you know provide some kind of prescription or treatment was sort of when our when our interaction ended. And I think it's becoming really clear now that the success of the treatments that we provide or the the uh, understanding of the diagnosis that we may provide really is influenced by a lot of social determinants of healthcare. So, for example, in atrial fibrillation, many patients may have symptoms that are, you know, a little unusual. They may have palpitations. They may be completely asymptomatic. So they may be unaware of that diagnosis. They may misinterpret those symptoms. They may have other, uh, you know, sort of social issues, family-related issues, cultural issues that prevent them from actually seeking care for, you know, symptoms like profound fatigue or, or, or breathlessness. That limits the ability of 
the healthcare provider to actually diagnose atrial fibrillation in that patient. And once they are diagnosed, <clears throat> you know, there may be structural issues around them accessing good treatment. And we know that uh, the use of anticoagulation, for example, can dramatically reduce the incidence of stroke in this patient population. And, and, but even if they are um, you know, able to see you in clinic and you're able to provide that prescription, they may have challenges affording that medication. They may have cultural issues around taking regular medication and may rely on other home-based remedies uh, because of the education that they may have had. And it's really, really important for us to keep in mind that as we interact with patients, understanding what those social barriers are is going to be a huge determinant of whether or not we are successful. Now, in atrial fibrillation, success is actually relatively straightforward and how we measure success, right? We measure it by making an accurate diagnosis and providing that therapy that either gets that patient back into a regular rhythm or provides them with anticoagulation to reduce their risk of stroke. But if you limit your understanding to what treatment success is to those simple sort of checkboxes, it really does limit our patient-related outcomes, which is really why we're here. I mean, it's not really about making the diagnosis or providing the prescription, ultimately the success is determined by whether or not that patient has an adverse outcome. And without taking into account these structural, these social determinants of health, that success really is limited. That is exactly right. Like all of these things are very important, but they're really important because they impact people's health. And the other thing that I wanted to just highlight is how each one of these things that may manifest is a direct result of structural inequities. So the two things uh, that you mentioned that I wanted to just underscore were um, how patient symptoms may not seem unusual. So fatigue or tiredness. When a population disproportionately has two to three jobs, is working, you know, the night shift, um, you know, because they're, you know, minimum wage workers, and they have to work, you know, multiple jobs um, in order to sort of have a livable wage they're going to always be tired, you know? And so fatigue may not seem unusual for anyone in the family because of structural inequities. When people have limited access to healthcare, um, they can't afford expensive medications or have systemically been because of racial segregation or, you know, laws preventing them from, you know, entering white medical systems have to figure out other ways to care for themselves and are have, you know, family-based remedies that have been passed down from generations, that is a response to structural inequities and structural racism. And so when people are presenting and we're like, ah, why are they doing these things? It's, we have to understand that the historical context um, in which marginalized people have been forced to live and have that extra layer of um, empathy, <laughs> that extra lens of understanding of these of the situations in which people have been forced to live and how that impacts their life and presentation. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think, you know, we're also going to talk a little bit more about inequities in research and, and you know, actually generating evidence in these underserved, underserved populations so that it can inform our clinical care, which I think is also really, really important. It should be a priority for those of us who are involved in clinical research. Absolutely. So let's um, think about this um, in clinical terms. So we have a couple of cases. We're, we're going to go ahead and start right off. Sunil, would you mind presenting the case of Francisco for our audience today? Yeah, absolutely. So this is 
you know, a case that I think many of us uh, see. It's emblematic of cases that we see probably all the time. This is a relatively young patient, 40 years old, born and raised in the Dominican Republic, identifies as Hispanic Black, really has limited, um, uh, you know, education. Health literacy status is really unassessed, and we don't do that systematically, unfortunately. You know, during our interactions, we use a lot of medical terms. And, and patients, you know, want to be polite. So they may not actually ask, what do you mean by that? Or they may feel a little bit inhibited about demonstrating their own lack of health literacy. So it's really important to think about that as we talk about this case. You can see that the, the patient you know, does have risk factors, right? Their blood pressure is elevated. Uh, their BMI is high. This is his first time seeing a cardiologist after being seen in the ED for atrial fibrillation that was incidentally discovered after he went in after a motor vehicle accident. So this patient was in the ER for something completely unrelated to a cardiovascular diagnosis. And then on the monitor, you know, had atrial fibrillation discovered. And, you know, because the ER is focused on the MVA, you know, they said you should probably go see a cardiologist to uh, to get this atrial fibrillation addressed. You should probably have that checked out. (laughs) 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 So it's really important to consider disparities in atrial fibrillation treatment once a patient is diagnosed, um, because uh, this person was only diagnosed, as you said, sort of incidentally, someone else who may have been a well-established patient likely would have had an EKG for their blood pressure had been, you know, would have been picked up much earlier and treated much earlier. Um, So can you talk about uh, disparities in treatment for atrial fibrillation? Yeah, absolutely. And these have been documented. So we know, for example, based on studies that have been done, that Black patients, uh, patients of Hispanic or Latino descent, Indigenous patients, um, are less likely to be treated with rhythm control or catheter ablation. So there's a whole aspect of atrial fibrillation treatment that involves procedures. And you know, this is true across the board, not just for catheter ablation, but even for invasive procedures uh, for coronary disease, for example, or bypass surgery. These groups are historically less likely to be referred for those invasive procedures. Uh, And we're talking about patients who are actually appropriate candidates. It's not that they're not candidates for these procedures. They're just not referred as often. We also know that, you know, our our reliance on, on, you know, sort of a one-size-fits-all dosing strategy sometimes is not appropriate. So, for example... And there are large registries that have been run by the American College of Cardiology uh, called the uh, the NCDR Pinnacle Registry. It's an outpatient registry. You know, if you look at those patients who have a CHAD score greater than or equal to two, so this is very, very high risk for stroke, okay? A risk that we know we can decrease with the prescription of anticoagulation. Most, a large proportion of those patients, greater than a third, were treated with just aspirin, which we know is inadequate treatment. So, you know, in cardiology, we think of undertreatment as basically no treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Because so if you're giving someone aspirin, you're really not decreasing their risk of stroke appropriately. Now, some of that is because, you know, the, the healthcare provider may say, well, I'm a little worried about bleeding risk in this patient. This patient has a job where they're doing a lot of manual labor. But the reality is we know that those risks are really over estimated, particularly in groups that are underrepresented. So these are patients who, you know, really should get anti- adequate anticoagulation. Now, in the old days, we only had warfarin, and warfarin required a lot of monitoring. That is very, very challenging, uh, you know, for patients uh, who ha- may have limited access to healthcare, limited access to transportation, uh, and quite frankly, just have very, very busy lives, maybe balancing more than one job, maybe balancing a family to come in to get their uh, INR checked. 
thankfully now we've got uh, newer agents that don't require monitoring, but there's another aspect of access to that, which is whether the patient has health insurance. Are they able to afford these drugs? Um, so these are the kinds of things that I think lead to these disparities in atrial fibrillation uh, uh, treatment. And I think being aware of this is really just half the battle. We have to address them as well, but I think it starts with the awareness. Absolutely. So let's take this understanding back to our patient, Francisco, and see how this applies. Yeah. So this patient was sent home from the emergency department with a prescription for warfarin. You know, we just talked about how that, you know, is probably not the best treatment. Um, you know, this patient has frequent cramping in his light, right leg. So for a cardiologist or someone who's interested in, vas in vascular medicine, you start thinking, geez, is this claudication that really has not been uh, diagnosed previously? Oftentimes these patients, if they see a doctor, will say, I'm having some leg pain when I walk to the mailbox. And the answer they sometimes get is, okay, well, don't walk to the mailbox then, you know, or they get a prescription for a scooter, right? So instead of actually taking that next step, so the cardiologist in this case does the appropriate thing, calculates the CHAD score of two with hypertension and PAD. So that factors into the CHAD's VAS score in addition to the AFib. Clearly this patient is at risk for metabolic syndrome. And you know this patient says, I didn't start the warfarin that they gave me the prescription to because he didn't know why he needed the medication. He was in the ER for a motor vehicle accident. Mm -hmm. So you know this is an, a great opportunity for this cardiologist to provide the appropriate education about what the diagnosis is, what the risks are. Because again, remember this patient is asymptomatic. They feel fine, mm -hmm. right? So it's important for, for us to, to tell this patient, to tell Francisco exactly what the risk of having AFib is and how we can decrease that risk. Excellent. Um, and I think that this idea of how we translate numbers and risks all of that is always a challenge for every specialty and, and for us as primary care physicians um, to patient populations, regardless of their level of literacy, like translating proportions and, and all of that stuff is, is um, part of the challenge of being a physician. Um, but specifically related to CHAD score and clinical guidelines and, and risks of stroke, um, what have you seen as far as how that translates into disparities and gaps in practice and how that may be related to the case that we're discussing? Yeah, this is great. I want to point out a couple of things on this slide because I think they're really, really important. First, you know, this is a simple score that, you know, I sort of carry around on my phone because, you know, no one likes to do math, right, in the hospital. So you want to make sure you have it accessible. Um, but I want to point out a couple of things. The first is um, female, just being a female gives you a point on this. And that's really important. We know that women are undertreated and it is clearly part of this risk score. So if you have a, a patient who's a female in front of you, you know, realize that that actually gives them a point on this scale. The other thing I wanna point out to you is that aspirin alone is nowhere on this slide, right? So we talked about how a third of the patients with a CHADS VASC score of two or greater, and that puts that patient to a high risk category. Aspirin is not adequate therapy. If you're going to use aspirin, you should use it in addition to something else. And you can see how, you know, a CHADS, VASC, a CHADS score of zero is very low risk. One is intermediate risk. But once you hit that two, that's when that patient really is very, very high risk and needs to have first line therapy with oral anticoagulation. Again, we prefer now what is called the NOACs or the DOACs, the, the new oral anticoagulants, not so new anymore, uh, direct anticoag oral anticoagulants or DOACs, because they have been shown to be just as effective as warfarin with a lower risk of intracranial hemorrhage. So, you know, I, I think that having this at your fingertips to calculate these scores and showing patients what that means is going to be very important to 
not only increase the educational level for patients related to AFib, but I think it will help adherence as well. Patients realize why they're being treated. Exactly. I think that um, your point about the responsibility being on us to, to, to give that information to patients. We talk about health literacy, but really the only people who are fully health literate are clinicians. We should not expect our patients to have the same literacy as we do because they didn't go to medical school. So it's our job to make sure that we have transmitted the information at a literacy level that is at the grade school. So we have to figure out how to you know, take these complex terms and make them understandable you know, as we say, like to your grandmother or to my, you know, teenage children, it's not the patient's job to sort of, you know, escalate their, their knowledge level to be able to, to talk to us. Um, so, so thank you for that. So let's check back in and see how Francisco is doing. Yeah. So this is a great slide because I think, um, you know, I live in New York, tremendous amount of diversity, cultural diversity in the city. Uh, you know, make sure you have an interpreter, right? When you interact with, that's a fundamental basic thing because again, patients may be very reluctant to tell you that they're not understanding what you're saying. They may smile and nod um, and, you know, the message really hasn't gotten across. So, you know, the healthcare provider here, the cardiologist, make sure that they have interpreter services are available. He, he or she calculates the HasBlood score. He or she discontinues the warfarin and starts the DOAC, implements that ABC pathway to consider the comorbid conditions and I think, you know, importantly, educates Francisco about exactly what his condition is, why they're prescribing the DOAC, because he was very candid and said, I didn't even start this because I didn't know why I needed it. Um, and, and then, again, considers these other comorbid conditions that can ultimately improve not only his quality of life, but make sure that he can potentially even live longer if he, does, if he meets some of these goals. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's one thing to also consider that when people are sort of rightfully getting started or treated for other conditions, when they're seen in the emergency room, the ER docs are not necessarily, they're in the emergency room. They have, you know, they have other emergencies coming in and they may not have the time to sort of fully say, okay, <laughs> you know, you have this complicated cardio cardiology condition. Um, and let me take the time to explain to you about all what this is, and this is why you're taking uh, warfarin, et cetera. And so, um, but that is important for patient adherence. So um, making sure that our patients are fully on the same page, that sort of shared understanding, shared decisions is, is really key to patient adherence. We're gonna move on to our second learning objective, um, which is to implement strategies to address inequities in the treatment and outcomes of patients with complex cardiovascular disease. So Sunil, like atrial fibrillation, I'm sure it's important to highlight disparities in the diagnosis of cardiovascular conditions in racial and ethnic minority patients. Can you highlight some of these disparities for the audience? Yeah, I mean, look, cardiovascular disease is still the leading cause of death, right? And, and, and so I think uh, we know that certain individuals in certain groups are even at greater risk from dying because they don't get diagnosed as often. And right. again, this is all tied up in some, some of these social determinants of health. Even after you adjust for some of these socioeconomic status issues, access to healthcare, non-Hispanic Black people are still 12% less likely to have adequately controlled blood pressure. Data show that primary care doctors, uh, unfortunately, are following race-based recommendations for prescribing ACE inhibitors and ARBs. We're finally getting away from that race-based calculation of GFR. Um, you know, thank goodness. That's like the past year or so. 
Yeah, exactly. It's amazing how it's taken this long to sort of get away from that, right? So, you know, I, I think because of that, they have a higher adjusted risk compared with their white counterparts, cardiovascular death, myocardial infarction, stroke, heart failure, et cetera. So, you know, this is a problem of both diagnosis and treatment, but it's also a problem of prevention. Because when we see patients coming into the hospital with their index MI, we realize that they have risk factors that are very, very poorly controlled, may not have even been diagnosed. Diabetes, you know, it's not unusual to see someone who has never been, you know, been diagnosed with diabetes come in with their first infarction and have a hemoglobin A1C of eight or nine, right? Uh, because again, they're not seeing, they're not able to have access to that care. Uh, they, you know, have other issues that may prevent them from seeking care. Uh, they may have limited health literacy. Uh, and then if they do have, uh, you know, if they are aware of, of what these risk factors are and are making attempts to see uh, physicians, they may have difficulty in transportation to the doctor's appointment. They may have difficulty in affording the medications. So again, keeping all that in mind is really, really important. We just talked about it with AFib. I would argue it's just as big an issue, if not bigger, for vascular disease, stroke, myocardial infarction, PAD. Uh, I spent a, a large part of my career in North Carolina, which is part of the U.S. amputation belt. Um, and I've, you know, I've not heard of that. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but in the South, Yes. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of PAD that is that is occurring in Black patients and Latino patients and in the indigenous population. I think that's because of the, uh, again, those social determinants of health that are limiting their ability to access care and the high rates of, of risk factors like smoking. So let's take on another case um, that will help sort of think about uh, cardiovascular disease other than AFib. Can you introduce our um, case of Samantha? Yeah, this is a really, really important case. Um, so this is a 45-year-old female, again, younger than, than, than you know, we, what we'd expect, born in Florida, identifies as Black and Indigenous. She's 5'7", weighs 230 pounds, BMI is 32. Blood pressure when she comes into the ED is markedly elevated, right? 153 over 97. She presents to the ED with abdominal discomfort and some episodes of confusion that she describes as just sort of a foggy feeling, right? So she's evaluated. She's diagnosed with anxiety and a UTI based on a urine sample that was um, that was uh, obtained. And, you know, part of that evaluation, you know, she's pointing to the upper part of her abdomen. And so they say, geez, this might be some chest pain, but why don't you go see a cardiologist, you know, because we've got a full waiting room uh, full of patients that we need to see. Um, you know, she's referred for cardiology where she continues to feel sort of dismissed, right? Because Here's a patient who's a young female, has been seen in the ED with abdominals. We have a diagnosis. This is a UTI. Just take your antibiotics. You know, you'll feel better. Um, you know, this is just, this is really straightforward. This is not a cardiology problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's what she's, that's what she's told. Um, and so this is, again, this is a really, really important case. And I want people to pay attention to this because, you know, I, the issues here are she's a female. She's from an underserved population and pay attention to her symptoms. And I think we'll get into the sort of the meat of what this is in just a second. Yes, so uh, why don't we talk about why this is really important? And I, I think the fact that uh, she felt like she wasn't being heard is uh, sort of, there's a national conversation happening right now about black women's experiences of not being heard in the medical doctor's office and what that means for, for their health. And so, Talk about some of the disparities in the diagnosis of patients with complex cardiovascular disease and the ways that they may present differently and, and what that means ultimately for their outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
you know, we know that, uh, you know, 40% of patients with AFib are asymptomatic. It gets picked up incidentally, like the, the previous patient that we talked about. But the other thing is that remember that not all patients read the textbook, right? So they may present very, very differently. And it's important to have a high index of suspicion when someone comes in. So for example, in this particular patient, you know, her abdominal pain was sort of misread as being part of a UTI, right? Um, so she never really got that evaluation with an EKG. Um, there's probably ascertainment bias in AFib because we think of the AFib patient as being an older patient, right? You know, we know that uh, there's an epidemic of AFib because the population is getting older. But yes. it's not everybody with AFib is elderly and not all elderly patients will have AFib. So again, keeping that index of suspicion high and, and making sure that, um, you know, you're making sure you're not leaving any stone unturned. Now, from the clinical trials perspective, uh, you know, it's very challenging because we know that the clinical trials that have been done tend to undersample certain groups. Uh, you know, we struggle to get above 30% representation of females in our clinical cardiovascular clinical trials. Um, you know, for Black patients, uh, it's even worse. Indigenous patients, it's very, very challenging. Now, the perception has always been that, oh, those groups don't want to participate in clinical trials. But what we're learning now is that it's actually because they're not approached for clinical mm -hmm. trials. And so, you know, it's important to make sure that we have representation in our clinical trials to make sure that we understand if there are differences in treatments that we have available across these patient populations. And again, in a patient like this patient that we're talking about, Samantha, you know, she's a female, she has elevated blood pressure, she is obese or, or overweight, um, and, you know, she has some sort of unusual symptomatology. So this is a patient where you certainly don't want to dismiss what her findings are, lest you actually miss something that may be important. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's follow the case and see how she's doing. Yeah. So as expected, you know, the UTI was treated, but she continues to have these symptoms. And, you know, on further questioning, if you sort of delve into that a little bit more, she not only has that abdominal discomfort, she has fatigue, she has palpitations, she has these panic attacks. Further questioning, they may or may not have even asked in the emergency department, does she smoke? Does she drink alcohol? She endorses both. So the cardiologist appropriately assesses the CHAS, VAS, the CHAS score, comes up with a score of two. So this patient is high risk for stroke. And when you first read that description, you never would have thought that, right? Here's a young female coming in with abdominal pain, that's ah, a UTI, who's even thinking about stroke in this patient? But we know that when we start quantifying those risks, that this patient is at high risk for stroke. So the cardiologist appropriately obtains ambulatory EKG monitoring or a Holter monitor or a loop monitor. Mm -hmm. uh, and it notes paroxysmal AFib. That is consistent with her symptoms of when she has these episodes of confusion or these so-called panic attacks. So appropriately, she starts DOAC treatment, orders imaging, stress testing to make sure that her abdominal pain is not angina, mm -hmm. uh, appropriate laboratory studies, and other diagnostic tests to make sure that her cardiovascular system is completely assessed and it's not written off as, you know, it's all in your head, or this is just, you know, it, there's no way you could have cardiovascular disease because you're a, a relatively young female. That mm -hmm. is important bias that we have to overcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there other considerations for her care that you can walk us through? Yeah. So again, it's important for us to make sure that we have a holistic approach to this, right? Um, and many cardiologists or specialists may think, look, I'm going to stay in my lane here. Okay, I'm I'm going to diagnose that AFib. And look, you may not be an expert in treating diabetes. You may not be an expert in managing weight. 
But at least recognizing that those are issues and making sure you communicate with the primary care physician or send to another specialist is important. So this cardiologist appropriately says, patient has high blood pressure, is overweight. These things go along with type two diabetes. Let's just right get it an A1C. It's elevated, it's 10, right? <laughs> this patient has those episodes of confusion. Let's get an MRI or, or some kind of cerebral imaging. This patient's already had, uh, you know, sort of uh, evidence of a TIA. Mm -hmm. So now the TAS score is even higher, right? It's not just two, it's five. It's very, very high. Yes. So of course, this patient is going to need further evaluation for polyvascular disease, an entity that we're starting to become more and more aware of. So, you know, uh, CAD, CVD, PAD. So this patient will discuss getting uh, further imaging with a CTA, a coronary uh, CT scan. And then, of course, that cardiologist appropriately wants to make sure that they're closing the loop. So she communicates with the primary care team to make sure that the other comorbid conditions are adequately addressed uh, and also initiate services with a case manager to make sure that the patient doesn't fall through the cracks of our health system. Yay, the cardiologist talks to the case manager. That's <laughs> <laughs> team-based care. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's really, really important. So Neil, what a wonderful time I have had uh, with you today. This was such an excellent discussion. Um, just thank you so much for all that you're doing um, for your patients in New York City and for the patients uh, or for the, the clinicians that are with us today. I'm going to try and summarize our discussion with SMART goals, which are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. And so that's what I hope that our audience will take away from this presentation and apply to your own practices. Uh, the first is to identify disparities in the diagnosis and treatment of atrial fibrillation. Uh, the second is to integrate holistic treatment strategies into the care of patients with atrial fibrillation to improve treatment outcomes. Third is to identify disparities in the diagnosis and treatment of patients with complex cardiovascular disease. And then last is to integrate holistic treatment strategies into the care of patients with complex cardiovascular disease. So this CMEO briefcase is one of a four-part CME-CE initiative, and we really hope that you'll take advantage of and participate in all the activities in the series. These activities cover strategies that address racial and ethnic disparities across therapeutic areas. And I really encourage you to join us for the entire initiative. It's really be great. By participating in these activities, you demonstrate your commitment to improving health equity for all patients. The CMEO DNI Hub also has a number of resources available that we have really been sort of building up over the past several years to help you further your own education on diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And so Sunil, I just really want to thank you, thank you, thank you again for joining us today and for having just a wonderful, robust, and authentic conversation about these issues. Oh, well, thank you. It's really a privilege to be part of this. All right. Um, to receive your credits for this activity, please complete the post-test and evaluation. We really do appreciate your feedback. We tailor our future programming based on it. We wanna hear from you. Tell us what you liked, how we can improve and what additional topics you'd like for us to address. And I just really wanna sincerely thank you, our audience for your commitment to diversity, equity and inclusivity. Um, because together, all together, we can strive to provide the best and most equitable care to our patients, particularly those who are most marginalized and underserved. Thank you all so much for being with us today and have a wonderful day.